Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Rethink Culture, the podcast that shines a spotlight on business leaders who are rethinking workplace culture. My name is Andreas Constantino, and I'm your host, and I'm also chairman and founder at Slash Data. I'm an accidental micromanager who turned servant leader and over years developed a personal passion for workplace culture. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share on the podcast or have a guest we definitely have to bring on the show, please let me know by emailing rethink at rethinkculture.co. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting a friend and fellow entrepreneur, Dylan Giri. Dylan is a serial entrepreneur. He loves learning. He's a servant leader and a role model of mine. He has a deep passion for understanding people and continually improving. He's founded many businesses. I'll just list them out. His main business is Kilowatt, which is a live events production company. They recently run a very big event for entrepreneurs organization in April in Cape Town for about a thousand or two thousand people. He uh, is also the founder of 180 Digital, an animation and digital content creation business that complements the Kilowatt business. He's also the founder of Three Peak Studio for virtual broadcasting, and he is the founder of Circle Forward. I hope I'm getting all that right, Dylan. It's a consultancy that facilitates and organizes team building events for clients around the world. Yeah, that's it. And he's also very passionate about culture and people. He's going to tell us lots about it. Dylan, welcome to the Rethink Culture podcast. Andreas, thank you so much for inviting me to be here. And thank you so much for that incredible introduction. Part of me didn't want you to stop. And then when you started listing all the businesses, part of me was thinking, uh, have I got too much on my plate? But uh, we're having a lot of fun. And thanks for the reminder of, of all the amazing business opportunities that I've had. And, and thank you for creating this opportunity and space to come and have a conversation with you today. So let's start with the basics, Dylan. Tell us a bit about your business so we understand where you're coming from. And also a question I love to ask my guests is, tell us about where you grew up wow. and how did that end up influencing you? Okay. Well, let me start with, with where I grew up. And, and, and I usually make a, a little joke about this because I was born in a coal mining town in South Africa called Whitbank. Well, it was called Whitbank when, when I was born there. And I like to refer to it as, as, as like one of the roughest places in South Africa where I don't usually share with people on a first date that I'm from Whitbank, but it's all tongue in cheek, amazing humans that have come from that part of the world. But I grew up on the East coast of South Africa in Port Elizabeth. I went to school there and moved to Cape Town uh, 23 years ago now. And um, has I've really fallen in love with Cape Town. It's a phenomenal city. I, I believe it's a first world city in a third world country. And I'm privileged enough to travel a lot. So um, every time I come back to Cape Town from my travels around the world, I just feel so at home and so happy that, that Cape Town is my base. So... I think Cape Town, uh, I think at a young age in, in on the east coast of, of, of South Africa in, in Port Elizabeth, influenced my entrepreneurship foundational roots. Um, 
I had the stereotypical newspaper run. I worked at the local fuel station. I worked in the bakery at uh, at a local uh, supermarket. Um, I did many retail jobs. And, and in fact, I can't remember from the age of about 13 ever having a holiday. Um, working and doing something in the school holidays was always so important for me. And then um, when I moved to Cape Town, although I moved to Cape Town in a commercial role for a big listed company, uh, very, you know, after about seven years of being in Cape Town, I knew that the time was now right and I'd gathered enough information to take the step and to cross the bridge of, of no return and, and start Kilowatt. And that was in 2007, which uh, is 16 years ago. But almost a lifetime ago, if you think how the world has changed. I mean, I, I started Kilowatt in June 2007, and that was the same month that the first iPhone was launched. And I, if you think about how the world's changed just with that and what impact that's had on the world. It was also the time when Madeleine McCann went missing. I don't know if you remember the Madeleine McCann no. uh, kidnapping in Portugal. And so that was really the start of me becoming a proper entrepreneur. And we've been through many iterations of Kilowatt. We started the business effectively being a business that would rent technical equipment to events. So we would rent speakers and lights and we would do conferences and concerts and parties. And um, it, it, it was interesting because we had no capital. So we used to rent the equipment from other companies and we used to add our flair. And slowly but surely, we started building this business. And, and this business has metamorphosized itself and reiterated itself. And, and today, post-COVID, we're in our X amount of reiterations. And we've actually now moved away completely from equipment and we are an intellectual property service provider and an execution service provider. So we very much help clients to understand all the fundamentals of their production and how everything works together with their event. We can then either sub-hire the equipment for them or we, they can use their normal supply to hire in equipment and then we provide the expertise. So we provide the technicians to come and operate the lighting, the video engineers to operate the media servers. And it's, it's created quite a niche environment for us because when we owned equipment, we had a lot of competitors and now we've, we've sort of limited the amount of competitors we have and the, and people that were previously competitors can now either be customers or they can be service providers. And so, so you went up in the value chain. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm really excited to see where it goes and, and, and what happens and, and also excited about the fact that we finally unlocked a scalable business model because we always felt limited or restricted by the equipment. And that's why we didn't open in other countries. And so now we can use South Africa as sort of the creative hub to develop the production and we can use humans in, in, in different parts of the world to execute. And so that's something I'm very excited about. And, and I really enjoy creating businesses in the ecosystem of kilowatts. So complementary mm -hmm. businesses. Mm -hmm. When did culture become important? Was it like always there? Was it a light bulb that lit at one point? Such a great question that. And 
And it's something that I've pondered for so many years. I think that, I think an important thing I need to do to preface this is that, that I never went to university. And so this was also part of me working and, and starting a business because deep down I thought no one was going to employ me. Uh, but that's a different story. But when I started my business, I was so fundamentally involved at the coalface and I was so passionate about making it work that I think that that culture filtered down into the people that we employed. And so the first staff member, you know, sort of basically just siphoned that culture out of me with a hose. The next team member, you know, I was always there. I was always with them in the coalface, in the trenches. And so this culture developed, which I likened to a rocket ship taking off. So there was tons of energy. There's tons of excitement. You know, everyone's, you know, like, is this rocket going to work? Isn't it going to work? Is it going to take off? There's huge amounts of excitement. And then I believe the num when you get to 30 employees, there's not enough pipes from the founder to for everyone to get that top-down culture from the founder. And that's really when I think culture starts becoming difficult. I think, I think for many entrepreneurs, the initial stages of culture is quite easy or they could be misconstrued to them having a good culture. But it doesn't really matter because the founder is so relevant and so close to all the staff, it makes it a lot easier to control. When we hit about 20 staff, I really started to sit with a lot of guilt that I didn't go and study. I felt that I was making decisions that impacted people's livelihoods based on gut feel. And I was, it was typical clear-cut entrepreneurial imposter syndrome. And so I started bringing in talent into the business to help me solve some of these culture challenges that were starting to develop. When we hit 30 people and we started opening other branches in other cities, it was exasperated even more. And at that stage... Did you, did you bring in an HR person at that stage? So at that stage, we then brought in an HR person and I still joke with her to this day. I said to her, you know, we didn't have any HR issues until you showed up. And, um, and, and it's because of this founder's dilemma. You know, when the founder walks on the floor of the factory and shakes everyone's hands and asks them how they're doing, they're smiling and they're going, we're amazing. But two minutes later, they're up at HR going, we're really unhappy. And so that was really, that was really difficult time for me. It, it was also coinciding with a time where I realized that I have to start reducing my operational exposure to the business at the coalface. I needed to move away and start running and managing a business. And I realized that the only way that I was going to get that right was in, to empower people to be the best versions of themselves. And so that's really where my passion started because that initial phase of moving away from the coalface was actually incredibly difficult for me. It was a time where I was quite depressed. You know, I never got to see the excitement of a new show going live. I never got to see the smile on a client's face anymore because I was behind the scenes working through these challenges. But then I discovered this new passion around 
helping people to realize the potential within themselves and also helping them understand how they can unlock that. And so that was a time in Kilowatt where we had to become a lot more deliberate around curating what our culture looks like rather than just leaving it to create itself. Because that's what, what happens. If you're not intentional about the culture you create in your business, the culture will create itself. Exactly. It's, it's, there is a culture, whether you want it or not. Yeah, 100%. It's a default or it's a, it's a culture by design. It's, it's, but there is a culture, there always is. I think that even to my definition of what culture is, because there's so many different definitions, you know, but for me, in a company, culture is what happens when what you do is not being seen by anyone else. So what do you do when no one else is watching? That is the output of your company culture. That's my version. Yeah, it's the behaviors that, the native behaviors, the unobserved behaviors. Yeah, 100%. Dylan, there's lots I want to ask you about culture, but before that, I want to try something else, and yet another format in these uh, series of podcasts, which is, what are two truths and one lie about you? Okay. And don't tell us what the lie is, but we'll, I'll ask you at the end of the episode. Okay. Interesting. So it's interesting because our local radio station has, uh, they lost one of their co-presenters. So they've been having, they've been having sort of different co-presenters each day to fill her spot. And this is one of the questions they've been asking on that show. So I've, I've been thinking about it actually for a couple of weeks now. So I have three statements for you. My three statements are that um, once upon a time in my life, I was incredibly unfit. In fact, I weighed 110 kilograms. And a couple of my friends said to me, I need to start getting active. So... I went from that conversation and I signed up for a full Ironman triathlon. Statement number one. Statement number two, I'm very passionate about cars. I absolutely love cars. I'm a petrol head. And I once starred in a TV series where I had to race cars against a Formula One driver. Ooh. Statement number three, I'm a massive Ryan Holiday fanboy. I love his books. I love his thinking. I love his writing. And I once sent Ryan Holiday a WhatsApp message and got a very favorable response. So those are my three statements. Super. Let's see if you can learn a bit more Super. about these uh, <laughs> questions okay. and answers. And let's see if we can guess it at the end. All right. Super. So let's go back into culture. Mm. Now... You were mentioning earlier when we were talking, one of the aspects of culture you're most proud of is creating a safe space for staff to challenge you. Mm. Tell me more. Yeah, I think what resonated with me in the beginning was when you said that you were a reformed micromanager. And I think that I can resonate with that as well. As well. At one stage in my life, in the early stages of the business, that's what I used to do as well. And I just used to sort of overpower people and get upset when they would challenge my thinking. Because when I was in that mindset, I was so outcome focused 
on the immediate outcome and not the long-term outcome that if anyone challenged me, then I saw that just as a roadblock. And so when I started to understand that culture and human resources in a company, especially now once you're working with slightly larger teams, is managing people's emotional ups and downs, managing people where they are. Some days someone might be at a high, some days someone might be at a low. And I started to understand that if I don't empower people and give them the ability to make decisions on their own, that I wouldn't be able to remove myself from that part of the business. I'll always be stuck in having to do the task. And so often when people say, if you want something done properly, do it yourself. In my heart and in my mind, I remember that time when I was that person that thought that way. Because when you think in that way, it's really just that you haven't found the way to allow other people to step up and to be able to fail, and to be able to learn something that you are good at. And ultimately, if you don't learn that, it leads to burnout. Because, you know, the other one is people say, I give 110% at work every day. You know, now I got 5% for maths in matric, and I proudly hang my reports on my wall because that has changed over the years. But you can't give 110%. What you can do is you can improve a whole lot of people's personal output by marginal increments, and that gives you much more than the 110% that you as the entrepreneur can put in. And so the first thing that I needed to do was I needed to start creating a safe space for my staff to challenge me. And more than that, the harder part was for my staff to fail. And sometimes when they failed, we lost clients. And that was really bitter, bitter pills to swallow. But I, I realized very quickly that if I was to create the safe space, I had to stop micromanaging. Because the minute I started micromanaging, the space was no longer safe. And so for me, I think that is an absolute building block of a strong culture is the freedom to be able to operate in a safe space and to feel that your ideas are heard, to feel that you are heard, to feel that you can challenge the system, to feel that you can challenge anyone in the business, to feel that you can debate. And more than that, also to create a safe space from a wellness environment. So what are we doing to create a safe space for the mental well-being of our staff, for the physical well-being of, this, of our staff? And, um, and, and I think that's critically important. You know, in the early days, we, we even had a psychologist on retainer just to have so that people could have an environment where they could take and let out their frustrations, their, you know, speak to someone while we were transitioning in our company to creating a safer environment and a safer space. And I think if you look at, if you look at big businesses, I mean, the, the one that comes to mind is, is Uber, who, you know, unbelievable founder and CEO, absolute visionary, but there was definitely this bro culture environment where people felt too afraid to challenge the CEO. People would, you know, someone would come up with a bad idea in the leadership team and everyone would just go along with that bad idea because they were too afraid 
to challenge the, the people in charge. And so you end up wasting so many resources just going down this path where, where in a healthy culture, people could have challenged that and they could have rigor, rigorously played out different models and different scenarios without being afraid that they're going to lose their job or they're going to, you know, get a warning or they're going to, you know, be, you know, at risk. Do you have a story about letting people challenge you that you can share? Or can you maybe talk about what mechanisms people have to provide feedback, anonymous or, or eponymous? So let me first tell a bit of a story, two stories, in fact. So in South Africa, we have a saying, it's called throwing a spanner in the works. And, um, and it means that you create chaos, you know, like everything's perfect. And now you've come and thrown a spanner in the works. And so when I, when I created a leadership team around me and we started operating with a leadership team structure within the business, I said to my finance manager, you know, I want you to be the person that always throws the spanner in the works. Even if you agree with an idea, come up with ways to not agree with the idea. And it is, it, it's actually, it's a hell of a role for her to take on because to this day, and I'd like to think that I've become a more integrated human being when it comes to the time that she puts the spanner in the works, it still triggers me. It still triggers me that, you know, we've done all this work now and now you come and say this, even though I know that I've given her the responsibility to do that. <laughs> But um, it, it has really helped us rethink ideas. And it's just the interesting part is that I'm still a human, you know, as a leader in the business or now, you know, I've got a more founder's role. We have a proper leadership structure. We're all still human. You know, as much as I love culture and as much as I love unlocking potential in human beings, our company still has culture challenges. Our company still has people where we're unable to unlock the potential. You know, these are part of the natural cycles. So some of the ways that we use for people to give feedback is just by creating a safe space. And I really feel that it is... It's more than having an open door policy. It's a staff member just being able to send me a WhatsApp and saying that they don't agree with this idea or they want to challenge me with my thinking on this. It's so informal and casual. And therein lies the power for me that, that we've created that safe space. But what we do do is at company meetings, we try to always give every single person an opportunity to speak. So everyone has a voice, you know, this kind of feeling that everyone has a voice and subtly people are practicing to speak out, you know, so it's even someone that may be very shy and doesn't want to talk when you put a microphone in their hand, they've got to speak in front of their peers and subconsciously we're trying to get people to find their voice and therein find the safe space and then be able to challenge us. So that's one of the mechanisms that works well. Building personal connections in meetings as well. You know, spending, if, you, if you've got an hour meeting, spending 20 minutes really connecting with people helps to keep the safe space going. It helps people to feel that you care. 
And then what we do is once a year, we do a culture audit in the business where we actually use the NPS rating system and we ask the question, if you were to recommend working at Kilowatt to friends and family, how likely would you be? And so that gives us a metric that we can base our culture on from you know, minus 100 to plus 100. And, and that allows us to see if, how we're improving year on year. And so that's how we did it the first year. The second year, we then added, what can we do to make you score just one more point? And then that still wasn't giving us sort of the data we were looking for because there was still some unhappiness and we would have sort of little sessions with staff where they'd still be unhappy about things that were linked to culture. And we then added another two questions. We added what makes you happy at work and what makes you sad at work. And that was an absolute game changer because now we had people who were you know, complete, like giving us nines and tens, they were complete promoters of the business. But when we asked them what makes them sad at work, they had a list this long. And we were like, oh my word. Well, yeah, is everything we need to do to sort that out. And then what we would do is we would create culture groups or culture teams, and we would actually have representation from different departments as we start to work through these priorities that were created through the data of what was making people unhappy at work. And, you know, it's, it's so incredible because if you asked me about inclusivity and diversity in the workplace in our company, for the last 10 years, I would say to you that we are leaders in our industry when it comes to inclusivity and diversity. Yet, when we saw it from some of our staff members' eyes, it wasn't painting the same picture. And that was really wow for me, to be able to receive feedback in that way where people felt safe, that that is done anonymously, but to then also be able to put the power back into the people's hands and say, okay, well, now come help be part of the solution. So what do you do once you get this feedback and process it? How do you engage the team? So what we do is we do it just on a basic Google sheet. We usually, we usually have a, a, a sort of event before that. We, we make a day of it. We have like a team building drumming session. We, we speak a little bit about the company and what's happened. And then people go off and they, they do the survey and we ask the questions. We then gather the data and then we sort the data into themes. And then we create, we build a presentation and about three to four weeks later, and there's a reason for it being three to four weeks later. And that is, that's how long it takes me to process the feedback and comments. It's really difficult. It's really, really difficult. Even though you know there's going to be such amazing stuff that comes out of it, the one negative comment or the one thing that makes someone sad is just like a dagger through your heart. And so I need that time to process um, the feedback and to understand the lens through which it's coming from and to build my compassion and emotional response to where that person is coming from. That's also why we do it anonymously. And then what we do is we have a company meeting again. And the first thing we do is we share all the data in raw form with spelling mistakes, with wow. angry tones, swearing. We share it back to them in raw form. Whatever they put in, 
we share it back completely transparent. And then we start sharing the data that's been processed into themes, into categories, into, you know, sort of different responses. We then break that down. And then we use sometimes an, an interactive voting system and or we create groups that then go away and we then build on those, on those um, challenges or priorities. And do you respond to each and every comment or you respond with a high-level strategy or what you're going to do differently? Initially, we, we just read every comment out. And again, we want people to feel heard. We want people to feel that they have a voice. And so just reading it out and showing it up on screen shows transparency. It shows that, that their comment was taken into consideration. It shows that their comment wasn't missed. And then we share the topics and themes. And, and, and at that point, we don't really have a strategy yet. We just are able to visualize these are the dominant themes that have come up for this year. And, and I mean, I'll give you a simple example. Now, our industry, especially what it, our business, especially what it was before COVID, was very resource heavy. You know, we had a factory that was manufacturing stages, exhibition stands, so tons of machinery, you know, a workforce that had to work together as a team in a factory environment. We had another massive warehouse filled with equipment that we would go set up on shows. And those shows, you know, setup times could vary from 12 o'clock at night to two o'clock in the morning. But one of the things that came up for three years in a row was that people wanted more flexible working hours or working environments. Now, this was pre-COVID, right? So in our industry, unheard of, you know, how do you give a team of factory workers flexible work hours? But once we had, once that had come to the surface and bubbled to the surface in three years worth of these culture audits, we kind of realized that we need to do something about it. And so what we did is we put together a task team and we had representation from every single division in the company. We had a fact, someone representing the factory. We had someone representing the technicians. We had someone representing the salespeople. And together they came up with a solution. And so what we ended up coming up with just in a nutshell was you had to be in good standing with the company. And we had a couple of metrics for that, that were behaviorally driven. So the behavior of our culture, and then we would allow you to have days like for the sales team, it would be simple. It would be very simple, right? So on a, this day and a, this day, you could choose where you work from and you could be completely flexible in your hours. But for the factory staff, it wasn't as simple as that because if they had a job going out, how do we then give them the flexibility? But what they then found out and came up with is that they would work together as a team to create the flexibility. So if there was something that needed to be manufactured for Friday and it was, let's say, it was 60 hours of work per person that was in it, what they would then do is get everyone together and go, okay, do we want to do a double shift on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then we'll take Thursday off and then Friday we'll come and do the installation. Or someone's child is having a concert, so everyone would work together to finish the work so that they could release that person and everyone along with them so that they could go and do their thing or go away on a family weekend. And, and it started self-regulating and self-managing itself. 
Wonderful. And it reminds me of the structures, the self-organizing structures that some companies try and use. So Haluk, yeah. that you probably know, he was the first guest in this podcast. He talked about building a company where every team is self-organizing and decides yeah. whether they work remotely or in the office. <clears throat> and I love handing this control. It's much harder to do than the hierarchies we're used to because it's just so different. But I firmly believe that it is the future of corporate organization, of letting people manage themselves in smaller teams because they know yeah. best. I agree. Rather than forcing global conditions. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with it. And I think what Haluk has done is so aspirational. I totally agree with every single part of his model. But when I say I agree with a caveat is that, that I, I cannot yet see how to implement that in my business. And that's on me, right? That's not on the people. Yeah. That's not on the system. I've got to figure that out. And I really do believe that that is the future. That is the future of how people will best extract optimal performance out of themselves and their teams. But it's, it's, con it's really controversial. It's highly controversial. Something I look pointed me to is this uh, group called Corporate Rebels. Yeah. So they've been studying self-organizing teams and organizations for a few years, and they put together a training masterclass for how, you know, the best in class companies run themselves. And there's all sorts of books and, and such, but I think this is, if I would recommend one source, this would be it. And the other one that is very highly regarded is um, Reinventing Organizations, the book. The author is now escaping me, but it's a book about how organization structures have evolved through the years. And what is the next generation or the future model of self-organizing teams? It's by Frederick Laloux, I now remembered. I think he's Belgian, if I'm not mistaken. And it, it's seen as the kind of the seminal work in the field. So I highly recommend it. Wow, thank you. That's, that's really exciting. I'll definitely check that out. Going back into your work and your learnings in culture, what was a hard lesson that you've learned or what was a moment when you look back into your, let's say, servant, but also micromanager self and say, wow, that was dumb. What was a, what was a, you know, an earlier naive version of you? Yeah, I think I often say to people that that time in my life felt much easier when I was the arrogant you know, have all the answers, come in as the swooping hero to fix all the problems, micromanage everyone, because I just had such levels of confidence that I was just completely oblivious to what I was doing wrong and, and where I was acting like a complete idiot. And so the more I worked on myself and the more I did personal development work, the more I started to understand that the world's not black and white and that the world operates in this gray space of complexity and, and having complex answers to complex solutions. And so I often say that, that, it, it, that with wisdom comes a, a lot more 
challenges because when I was oblivious to those things, it was much easier. And um, but yeah, I'd say I'd say the hard lessons in business is whenever change happens. So whenever change happens in a company, whether you're changing a software operating platform, whether you're changing a business model, whether you're changing organizational structure, whatever it may be, I think the mistake that I make is that I think that people are viewing this change through the same lens and with the same vision that I am. And, um, and that has been many times very detrimental to me. You know, when I, when I speak to people after a period of intense change and I realize how much fear and anxiety and, you know, how, yeah, just how much fear and anxiety they went through in this period of change. And I was like, but didn't you understand that if we didn't do this, it was going to work out worse. And if we, and now look how much better all of our lives are because of this. And, and I think that assumption that people were seeing things the same way as I was has really burnt me. And I've tried to, even in the last, you know, we, we, we completely redeveloped Kilowatt's business model after COVID. And, and I was trying to be aware that I was connecting with people on their level, you know. So for the people that needed more information, there was highly detailed emails. For the people that needed less information, there was lunches and chats and talks and everything in between. And I was really conscious of how I was managing this change and still people were fearing that they were going to lose their job, fearing. So still I could have done a better job in how me and the leadership team handled this change process. And I think that and I think many listeners will agree with me that when you go through change in a company, it's very, very difficult. And it's, it's often because we as the leaders are not managing that change properly. When we're not empathizing with the fear and the uncertainty and the doubt mm. in people's hearts. Yeah. And if we don't connect with that, 100%. we lose them. Yep. And it brings me back to, you know, it brings me back to this thing that we're all human. You know, we, we are all human. And I cannot stress enough how important it is to understand how you are connecting with each individual in that change process, how managers are connecting with each individual in their teams, that they're given the information to digest in a way that is as simple as possible for them and their personality style so that we can take away as much of this fear as possible and keep sharing the vision. You know, it's like we're, we're always eager to share the vision with our clients, with our friends, with our forums, with our EO mates, with, but we often leave our staff out of it. You know, we often leave them out of it. They, they don't know where we're going. The journey in itself is, is, is chaotic enough for them and brings so much uncertainty that I think all of us, including myself, we need to share where we're going and what the picture is that we have in our minds more. And I think that that is something, again, where I'm personally never going to cross the finish line. I'm never going to master this. But it's something that I want to improve every time it happens. And make sure that there's one less casualty, one less person that has to go 
to bed at night thinking that they are going to be a casualty of change. So Dylan, I'm conscious of time as, as we need to wrap up soon. But before we get to your two truths and, uh, and the lie, which I'm looking forward to, I always like to close the episode with your thoughts on what do we as leaders need to rethink about culture. You spoke about connection, you spoke about learning, you spoke about recognizing mistakes, yeah. uh, mental health. What, what, what of all these is something we need to reconsider? Mental and physical health is incredibly important to me. I myself struggled immensely with anxiety in sort of the latter years of my 20s and the early years of my 30s. And so mental health and well-being is, is kind of what cured me from that. And so in our company, it's very important. We have a breathwork facilitator that comes in and does breathwork with teams, and that's shown significant improvement with overall anxiety in people. We have a personal trainer that does um, fit. We've got a gym in our office and he does personal training with people, whether they want to just learn to open up and stretch a bit more, or whether they want to do full-on weights. That, that option is there for them. And I think that with everything that's going on in the world, you know, I always say I'd rather have an ambulance to stop someone. You know, I'd rather have a person at the top of a cliff to stop someone jumping off a cliff than an ambulance at the bottom of a cliff to pick up the pieces. And so the more we can make our people battle ready, and battle being such a masculine word, but, but ready for work by making sure they've got a stable mental well-being and that they're looking after themselves physically, then that is a very good point of departure. I think what's important is that as leaders, and I'm now talking as people who are the, the, the main operational leaders in their businesses, the CEOs, the managing directors, it's very easy to lose track of what is important when you're in that role. And I think that, that for many years, for me and for many listeners, you get trapped in the output of the company, the product development, the client services, the when in fact your number one sort of objective should be maintaining the culture in the business. You know, then choosing a proper leadership team. Those things are super important. And, and I think what comes with that is being very intentional about your culture. I think some of the challenges we're seeing is that poor communication, obviously, right at the top of the list. Poor communication is, you know, it, as simple as what it sounds to fix, as complex a problem it is in your culture. And so I think that, that leaders need to put more effort into things like the Enneagram, into things like personality modalities where they can understand the lens that people are viewing the company and the challenge and the world through. And if, we, if we're able to do that, we will automatically be able to have more and higher levels of empathy. Because if I understand that that you're seeing things this way, I can be more compassionate to how you're reacting or responding to it. I think micromanagement is a big one, but I really think that it's starting to become like, like one of those things like, you know it's unhealthy for your business. Everyone says it's unhealthy for your business. And if you haven't started doing something about it, well, you've probably got much bigger problems in your business. I think lack of trust and lack of trust and lack of freedom. People want to 
do something they enjoy. They want to, they want to feel that they've got the freedom to make decisions. They want to feel that they're empowered to make the decisions. And, and those two go kind of go hand in hand. You know, there has to be trust for there to be freedom. And then I think that another thing that I was resp- that I was definitely responsible for in our company is I was building this company that had all these amazing perks and all you know these amazing things that we did for our staff and we had such a fun culture and we but what came with that was that we let poor behavior slide and that was detrimental that's when perceivingly good culture becomes detrimental to the performance of the business and we spoke a little bit about this earlier as well is what is my responsibility as an individual to making this company successful and so i think that there has to be account a culture of accountability along with freedom along with trust along with communication along with high levels of eq i think that is what we need not just to attract the top young talent of today into our businesses but also to attract good customers good suppliers and create a sustainable ecosystem and culture that goes beyond just your business that goes to you know how your suppliers engage with you how your clients engage with you how you engage with them and vice versa so i really think that that in in a in a summary is is what we should be focusing on as leaders to intentionally create better culture love it and then the last is make the people part of the process make the people stakeholders in the change when it comes to culture and, and many other things in business what you just mentioned about doing good in the world reminds me of a something i heard from satya nadella in a recent interview he said that your business model should be aligned with the world doing well mm, 100% 100% I think currently you asked me earlier about a favorite book and and I think that it changes so often but at the moment my favorite book that was uh, recommended to me by an EO actually is a book by a Dutch author called Rutger Berger and the book is called oh, Humankind and it has really given me such incredible yes sort of insights into the complexities of a good and bad world and how that comes to exist and how humans in predominantly we are good beings that respond well to good behavior and absolutely. to being treated as equals and so that book's been absolutely fascinating and highly recommended but yeah i agree with you in your statement and as we close dilin tell us more about your two truths and one lie what is the lie Okay, so you know me a little bit better. So which yeah. what do you think? I, I know I know you you actually did do an Ironman. Yeah. Triathlon. Okay, so that's I don't know about the other two. I don't know about your yes, uh, you... your car's passion. Do you have one? Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. Think... I I'm a big 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 petrol head and I was on a reality TV show called Test My Ride with a ex Formula 1 driver called Mika Salo. and uh we had to race against each other and that was a huge amount of fun i did do the triathlon which was crazy and i know you've done a couple a life changing moment but you're nuts and i never whatsapp brian holiday although i'm a massive fan of his writing i'm a massive fan mm. of his teachings 
I think he's a very wise, he's wise beyond his years. So I never WhatsApped Ryan. That that would be the lie. <laughs> very good. Dylan, Jerry, thank you for your wisdom, your servant leadership. Being a, a role model to many of us entrepreneurs for looking after your people and doing good in the world. And um, I hope you become an example to lots more people out there. Wow. Thank you very much for that. I really appreciate those kind words. And thank you for having me on your show. And thank you for taking the time and the effort to consistently do this and provide this as a platform for people to to be inspired and to learn something new. I think it takes a lot of effort. And so thank you from my side for doing this. Thank you, Dylan. Cheers. Cheers.